What an incredible blessing that was for all of us as adults to see all of those little faces up here sort of piled together, singing God's praises. And just to know that these little human beings uh, are having their minds filled with these great truths. You know, we don't know to what extent, as we think about all these kids gathered up here, some of them uh, converted believers, some of them trusting in Christ, some of them not. Uh, But we pray that all of them would be saved. And what a joy it is to know that they are, at the very least this day, hearing these great truths and even communicating these great truths, whether they understand them or not, uh, that are, as Josh prayed earlier, our only hope in life and death. The glorious truths of the gospel. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 14 this morning. (coughs) Exodus 14. Verses 24 to 31. The title for today's sermon is God's Glory at the Sea, Part 3. So today we will finish what we've been looking at in chapter 14 of Exodus. For the last two weeks we've been at the Red Sea with the Israelites, the approaching Egyptian forces, and the angel of the Lord, who travels with them in a pillar of cloud and of fire. The parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, I think this may be the most, uh, I think uh, definitely one of the most, but I would say maybe the most famous story in the Bible. Uh, As people who have no exposure to Scripture, who've had no exposure to Scripture, haven't grown up in church, Uh, This is one of those stories that stands out from the Bible uh, in the public imagination. The parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. And I think it stands out for a number of reasons, but it is filled with wonder. Uh, This is a miracle on a grand scale. Absolutely incomprehensible. And so for that reason, it is filled with wonder and awe. Even for those who do not believe this happened, it's an incredible thought. Just the mere thought that the sea would part. And that there would be, as the text says, like a wall of water on the right and on the left. It is filled with wonder and it is filled with truth about who God is. You know, it's it's striking that so much of the Bible is narrative. Uh, We have these great propositions throughout Scripture, but so much of the Bible is spent showing us these great truths through real-life human stories, through the story of God's redemption. There's a reason that we call the Bible and all of human history uh, the redemptive story. This is the great story of God's work of redemption. And in all of these individual stories... The Red Sea parting, probably being one of the most significant. In all of these stories, we learn great truth about who the Lord is. We come to know how he relates to human beings and what his desires are, what his will is for us. And we come to know about his power, about his faithfulness, his grace. So many other things that fill our minds with wonder, yes, but also Fill our hearts with confidence, with faith. We read these things and we come to recognize that all the things that could happen to us in this life 
all the adverse circumstances that could pile up in front of us are really nothing for those who trust in this God. And maybe you're here this morning, you don't know anything of that. You don't know of trust in this God. You're just going one day to the next, one week to the next, one month to the next. And I would say to you this morning, behold this God. Consider this God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible, your maker, the God who created the heavens and the earth, and the God who will one day, through Christ, bring all things to completion. All things to consummation. I just ask you this morning, where will you be on that day? Last week, we started looking at the second half of chapter 14. So verses 15 to 31. And I drew your attention to three things. So you guys can go ahead and put those up on the screen. These were our three points from last week as we started in on this passage, the latter half of chapter 14. And so first, we saw the preparation for the miracle in verses 15 to 20. God instructs Moses to move the people forward towards the sea. An incredible scene that would have been that here are the people encamped facing away from the sea, and they are told, God tells Moses to move them, to tell them to move towards the sea. They have the Egyptian army on one side and the sea on the other. Maybe there is an escape to the, to the right flank or the left. But no, God tells them to turn around and face the one sure, insurmountable obstacle. Of all the things there, maybe, just maybe, they could overpower the Egyptians. Unlikely. Insanely unlikely. But certainly they cannot swim through the sea. And inconceivable that they would walk through the sea. But God tells them to move forward towards the sea. And he gives Moses a preview of what he's about to do. He tells Moses, this is what's about to happen. Then the angel of the Lord, whom I understand to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity there, present in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate, Christ, we celebrate the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity at Christmas. This is the pre-incarnate Christ, moves in the pillar of cloud and fire, moves from in front of the Israelites to behind them, and he provides a protective barrier between God's people and this oncoming army of the Egyptians. Second, We looked at the path through the sea, verses 21 to 23. The Lord parts the sea through Moses. It is God who parts the sea, but he uses Moses to do it. Now, this is, I think, very instructive for us because even with this most dramatic, most God-glorifying of miracles, we see God carrying out his purposes through human instruments. And God still does that today. He did this great miracle of parting the sea through a human instrument. A fallible, sinful human instrument. And that's what God does in our lives. He uses us in all sorts of ways. As you saw these kids lined up here, just think about all the people, even today, who are pouring into the lives of these little kids. Pouring into the hearts and minds of these kids. God's truth. God uses us to do These great things, just as he used Moses. 
And as Moses lifted up his hand and the sea parted, the Israelites entered into the sea on dry ground. And as verse 22 says, the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And as I said before, this is an amazing miracle on a grand scale. This is not meant to be understood in merely naturalistic terms. This is not a a low tide. This is not uh, the wind that just happened to be a a little more than normal. And the ground was uh, good enough to walk through, maybe an inch deep. This is the sea parting, the depths parting, a wall on the right, a wall on the left, and dry ground In between. We ended last week with verse 23. It says this The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And as I talked about last week, this, this is one path, but it is a path of life, it is a path of salvation, a path of rescue for God's people. And it is a path of destruction for the Egyptians. And in some ways, it mirrors this life. We all travel the path of this life. And for some of us, this is a path that leads on the narrow way through the narrow gate that leads to life. And for many in this world, it is a path, the same path. It is the broad way. It is through the broad gate and it leads to destruction. Today we're going to finish this story by looking at this third point. You see it highlighted up here, the power over the enemy. So we've seen the preparation for the miracle, the path through the sea, and today we'll look at the power over the enemy, verses 24 to 31. God shows in this passage his saving power and his supremacy over his enemies. And we are to understand here, I think, a little precursor to the conquest of Canaan. The Israelites are to see and know that God protected them from the Egyptians. And just as he protected them from the Egyptians, he will protect them from all the armies of the Canaanites. And throughout their history, God will have power over their enemies. Do you remember when the people uh, called out for a king? They wanted a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. And God gave them Saul. And of course, Saul himself was like an act of judgment on the people. Saul was a, a foolish king. He disobeyed the Lord. He was unwise. But God gave the people what they wanted. They did not look to the Lord. They wanted a human king whom they could look to. Here we see that God needs no human king. He has power over his enemies and he can protect his people. He is the sovereign. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is supreme and he is the savior and the judge over all the earth. And it is a reminder to us, I think, this morning that God will ultimately defeat and has defeated all of our enemies. So think of our enemies this morning. Sin, death, hell, Satan... All the things that come against us, all, all the, the, the natural evils that we experience in this life, sickness and all that, that's a part of death. That's a part of death that hangs over this world. That was not present in Eden. It was not present before the fall. But the wages of sin is death. 
And we see it in natural evil. We see it in moral evil, in sin. We see it ultimately in the cessation of life as we die. And of course in the second death, which is eternal hell. We see it in Satan's attacks, in temptations that we face, in the ways that he drags us down and fights against us. We are in many ways surrounded by our enemies. We came here this morning surrounded by our enemies. Even as this very day, each and every one of us in this room has sinned already. It's not even lunch. We've all sinned. Undoubtedly, this very day. And all of these enemies, all of Satan's schemes and works have been at the cross and the empty tomb defeated by the Lord. And one day, ultimately, will be defeated when Christ returns. And so what we're seeing here is a little picture. A little picture of what God has done and will do for each of us. Those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. God will ultimately rescue us from our enemies through our Savior. He's the one we celebrate at Christmas. He's the one whom God sent to redeem us from sin, death, hell, and the devil. So if you would please stand. At this point we're going to read God's word together. Exodus chapter 14. And today we're going to look at verses 24 to 31, but we're going to begin reading in verse 15. Just before that, the Egyptians have come up on the Israelites. They have complained against Moses, and Moses tells them to to fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And then we come to verse 15. You know, before I read, I just want to say this. We've been reading as a family these references in the Old Testament to thus says the Lord. We've been talking about that in the Old Testament. How you get that frequently from the prophets. Thus says the Lord. And isn't it amazing to us every time we open up our Bibles, every time we read any of these inspired words, we are saying thus says the Lord. And so here we are. Thus says the Lord. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. 
And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then verse 24, where our passage for today begins. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. Once again, here it is, the emphasis. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You can go ahead and be seated. One of the great high points of the Bible here. It's uh, truly humbling and uh, an honor to be able to teach this passage and uh, just to be able to spend time here. I, I pray that we all have that sense of, of God's blessing that we would come to a passage like this and be able to look at it. The Lord has been good to bring us here this morning to hear his word, to study his word, and to sing his praises. Let's pray to him now and ask that he would give us this heart of gratitude to him and worship. Father, we thank you that you have providentially brought us here this morning to be with your people, to be in your presence corporately, Lord, and to be here underneath your word, to sit under your word and to be taught from it, to learn who you are and what you have done in history, <clears throat> but not just what you have done or who you were, but Lord, to know who you are now for us and what you do now in our lives each day. Father, it is amazing to consider that the miracle of the parting of the sea is really, it really pales in comparison to the miracle of one individual conversion. That one person would go from death to life, from hopelessness to hope, from being a hater of God to a lover and worshiper of God. Lord, that we would go from being called darkness to being light in the Lord. Father, what a miracle that you have saved even one. All of us born in sin. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have failed to give you honor and thanks. All of us have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. All of us are deserving of your wrath. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not come to that realization, who sees himself or herself as a good person, uh, who has 
more good deeds than bad? Lord, would they consider the magnitude of your holiness and perfection? Would they consider the depth and intricacy of human sin, of their sin? Lord, would they see through your word their need for a Savior? Father, would all of us this morning be reminded of our need for a Savior and the great joy of having him as our own. That Christ is in us, the hope of glory. That we have him as our intercessor, as our high priest. That his blood covers us and his spirit fills us. Father, we thank you for the salvation, the rescue which you have given us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us this Christmas to be truly devoted to him. Help our children to see that it is not the idols of this world that captivate us, but it is this Lord Christ in all of his splendor, in all of his goodness, in all of his sweetness and gentleness and meekness, and in all of his mighty power. He captivates our hearts. He fixes our gaze. Father, we pray that this is what our kids would see, not because we are performing before their eyes, but because this is who we are. Lord, be gracious to us and use this sermon this morning, we pray, to build us up in our most holy faith, to strengthen us in Christ, to comfort us where we are cast down, and to give us hope in the life to come. Lord, I pray that it would spur us on to holiness greater gratitude, love for one another, and worship of you in spirit and truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we see God's power over the enemy, we're going to cover three things this morning. And I haven't cluttered the outline up there with these, but I'll give them to you. They're very simple. You can write them down. So we see three things, the fighting, the destroying, and the showing. The fighting the destroying, and the showing. So let's begin first with the fighting. Look at verses 24 to 25. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel. For Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. And if you're confused, as I go through with Yahweh and the Lord, so anytime you see capital L-O-R-D, that is the holy name of God, the the covenant name of God. That's how he was known to his people as Yahweh. And so I go back and forth between Lord and Yahweh. For anyone who's visiting, that's what that is about. So the Lord is with his people. The great truth we focus on even at Christmas as we think about uh, Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord is with his people. And he manifests his presence through this pillar of fire and cloud, as we're told here. That That is how God, with the children of Israel, with the Israelites, as they're leaving Egypt, that's how God manifests his presence with them. He doesn't just tell them he's present. He doesn't just speak through Moses. He gives them a a visual manifestation of his presence. This is his kindness to them. His consideration of their weakness. They can see this pillar before them. Of course, 
God sees everything all the time. God is not just sort of a large, white, bearded man figure in the sky. That's sometimes the image children have. They see God just, he's a huge human, just sort of holding the earth in his hand. That, that is not God. God sees all, all the time. But the imagery here is of God acting on behalf of his people. As morning is approaching, he looks down, as it were, on the Egyptian forces as they are pursuing his people. Since he, is in, he, is, he manifests his presence through this cloud, it is natural that it would be described as him looking down on the enemies of his people. At some point, the cloud has ceased to be a barrier. We're not given all of those details, the Egyptians are now on the move and they are pursuing God's people through the sea. And we're told here in this brief set of verses that two things happen. Two things happen as the Egyptians are pursuing the Israelites through the sea. First, God puts them in a state of panic. One commentator, John McKay, describes it this way. The Egyptian army had advanced into the path through the sea. And the Lord threw it into confusion, a term that is employed to refer to the psychological impact of the Lord's intervention in battle on behalf of his people. And it's used several other times in this way, where it is meant to to explain the way that God works on the hearts and minds of the enemy soldiers. They are all of a sudden stripped of their morale. Their morale is stripped away and they begin to lose their will to pursue and to fight. God affects them in their thinking. He affects them in their feeling. He does battle on the inside and on the outside. The second thing that happens, and we don't know exactly how this is connected to the first. These two seem to be interconnected, the way in which God brings them to a state of confusion or panic. And what we're about to read, these two things seem to be connected. But God now strikes a blow to their chariot wheels, specifically. Remember what we read back in verse 7. When Pharaoh left Egypt to pursue the Israelites, he took 600, this is what it says, he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So he's got these 600 elite charioteers or chariots with all of these uh, two on each chariot. And then officers over groups of chariots is likely what's happening. So a chariot with two horses, two men on it. And then he's got these officers over groups of chariots. 600 elite chariots plus, plus, plus. Whatever other sorts of soldiers are with Pharaoh, this is mainly a chariot force. This is the best of the best in the war technology of the time. It's difficult for us to really think any significance is attached to this. I mean, chariots is, that's so, 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 so outdated. But during this time, 3,500 years ago, this was the best War technology that was out there. And this is what contributed to the Egyptians being a leading power or the leading power. This is the very best war technology. So what is God doing in that? He is striking a blow, notice this, not just at the Egyptians. 
he is striking a blow even more in what they trust in most. God is not just showing the Egyptians to be nothing. He's not just stripping them away of their own boasting and their own power. He's actually going directly for the one thing that they would pride themselves on the most. Their chariots. Their military might. This is where they boast. And he is going to use the very thing that they take pride in to disrupt their efforts. To undo their efforts. Now, it's not entirely clear what happens to these chariot wheels. The Hebrew uses the verb to remove, while the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation, uses the verb to bind. A different verb, to bind or to remove. So, of course, this has resulted in various proposals for what is going on here. Clogging, jamming, swerving, turning aside, breaking off. Removing These are all the different proposals and different words for those words that have been put forward to try to understand what does God do to these chariot wheels of the Egyptians, of the enemies of his people. Well, whatever it is that happens to the wheels, the result is that they drove heavily. So they're no longer speeding along as they were before, but now they're just moving along very slowly or perhaps dragging along as the horses move them. These instruments of speed become reasons for stopping. They are no longer able to proceed effectively. One possibility is that the Lord changes the makeup of the ground. And so we consider what God does manually, mechanically with these chariot wheels. But it may be that God changes the makeup of the ground. And we get a hint at this in Psalm 77. Verses 16 to 20, I'll read it to you. The psalmist says this, and of course we have to account for poetic language, but I think we are, the the psalmist is suggesting here that something occurred at the Red Sea that disrupted the Egyptians. Something occurred from the sky. This is what it says. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. By the way, if this is a dried up marshy lake, deep is not the word you use. The deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So my point there is just to draw attention to all of this storm language, this thunder and and lightning. And even we're told here, earthquakes. So I think we're to understand that quite possibly God does something like that there at the Red Sea that disrupts the ability of the chariots to move forward. Maybe the water that was entire, the the ground that was entirely dry now becomes quite wet. These chariots are swerving perhaps because of all this that's happening. Maybe the ground itself is opening up as there is an earthquake here and the chariots can no longer move forward. Whatever was going on at the sea, and we're not given all of the details, and whatever was happening to the chariot wheels, we know what effect this had on the Egyptians. We read it in verse 25. 
And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They recognize that what is happening to them is no mere natural phenomenon. Now this is really important to consider. It's not as though things begin to change a little or shift a little or they're just having trouble. Like, man, I wish these chariots were in better shape or I thought we inspected these. Did did no one inspect these before we left Egypt? They know that what's happening is from the Lord. These non-believers, these worshipers of false gods, they know that what is happening to them is from the Lord. It is dramatic. And they know that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is attacking them. He is fighting them, and he is fighting for his people. And in all of this, I think we're meant to to consider that God's purposes are now accomplished. God's purposes have come to fruition. Remember what it said in verses 4 and verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's what God is doing. Remember when Moses first comes to Egypt and he says to Pharaoh, "Uh, you're going to have to let God's people go. Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. What does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Who is this petty slave God? That I should listen to anything he has to say. He's this God. He's this God. This is Yahweh. And now you have it. In the mouths of the Egyptians, as they're coming out to attack the Israelites, they say, the Lord fights for his people. We must flee. God's purpose is that the Egyptians should know that he is the Lord has been fulfilled. This is exactly what Moses told the Israelites would happen in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Be quiet and watch the Lord work. And that is what we see here. The Lord is fighting, and the Egyptians know it. His people are walking the path of faith, and God is doing the fighting. Left to themselves, they have nothing, and they are without hope. But they are not alone. God fights for them. He fights for his people. And what we need to understand as we're gathered here this morning 3,500 years later is that God fights for us. This is our situation in this life today as we've gathered here in corporate worship together as we leave here and we go out into our family lives and we raise our children, we try to raise our children in the Lord. As we, uh, recently we were talking with our son just about the way that uh, the culture is trying to win the hearts of our children. The way that, that, that there are certain agendas in the culture trying to gobble up our kids. We will convert your children, they say. No. The Lord fights for his people. The Lord is with his people. He's with us as we love one another, as we fight sin, as we speak for truth in our culture. God fights for his people. He fights for our trust in him when life is hard 
and there seems to be no comfort, there is nothing but sadness, he fights for his people. We put on the whole armor of God. We don't just put on armor, we put on God's armor. We fight in God's might. It is the armor of the Lord. And we walk in the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of our own selves. Not what we can bring to the table. But we walk in the fruit of the Spirit. It's His fruit. It's His work. And it's His fight. The power is not ours. We walk in His strength, trusting that He will fight for us, His people. But God doesn't just fight. He wins. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the destroying. So we've seen the fighting, and now we come to the destroying. Look at verses 26 to 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. Or charioteers, as we could translate it. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand. And on their left. As I said before, God's purposes in and among the Egyptians have been accomplished. They have now acknowledged the Lord. They have now acknowledged the greatness and supremacy of Yahweh. And they have come to know that Yahweh is God and he fights for his people. I want you to notice something important here. Not everyone will be saved in the end. We do not believe in universalism. Universalism is the idea that that in the end, all people will be saved. Ultimately, everyone will receive God's grace and be saved. The Bible does not teach that everyone will be saved. But the Bible does teach that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So not every person will come to love God and serve God and trust God. But every person will fall on his or her face before God. And confess Christ as the king of the universe. As we read in Philippians 2 verses 10 to 11. I think we get a little picture of that here with the Egyptians. They are not going to be saved. They are about to be destroyed, but in their fleeing, they must confess this great Lord. And so now comes the decisive blow. The Lord commands Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea, and he will bring the waters back to their normal condition. And Moses obeys, and the waters return, and the Egyptians who had gone into the sea are utterly destroyed. No one is um, waiting around in the water 
No one is treading. No one is swimming. They are washed away. Verse 21 says, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. In other words, as they are fleeing back to the shore from which they came, they're no longer thinking in their minds, we got to get the Israelites back. We got to get our slave labor back. We can't let these slaves go free. They've, they've abandoned that. That's gone. They're fleeing. They're trying to get back to Egypt. And as they do, the waters fall in upon them as they are headed back to the shore. The verb here for through is used of shaking off a garment. So the imagery is that it is as though God shook them, shook them off of his people. It's the image of a shirt being shaken out. You know, you get some leaves or, or some dirt on a shirt and you shake it out. This is the imagery. God shook them off of his people like little specks of dust. This is the glory of man. If you would have lived back then, 3,500 years, that, that would have been the height of human glory. We're just like all humans in the history of mankind. You know, we just go back a day and go back a year and a month. And, I mean, go back a month and then a year and then a decade and then a century and then a millennium. We just keep going back and back and back. If, if you did that all the way back 3,500 years ago, the great picture of human glory would have been Egypt with its sparkling chariots. Here, the imagery is of the Lord God taking a shirt and just shaking the dust of these little men off of his people. This story shows us that human glory is truly nothing. It shows us what human glory really is. So let me just ask you this morning. You, you've got to now fast forward 3,500 years. You're here today. In what way are you captivated by the, the most sparkly, powerful, self-glorifying thing that this world has to offer? In what way are you drawn to human glory? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you want glory for yourself. Maybe you're starting out in your career. You're starting out in life. You're about to leave and go to college, whatever it is. And, and you really have your eyes set on your own future glory. You want glory for yourself. Fame, power, influence, authority, prestige, standing, status, renown, human glory. See it for what it is. Go to the Red Sea and see human glory for what it is. Just shake it off the shirt. All these pursuits, all these things that cause us to not spend time with our kids, to not go to gather with God's people, to not be good husbands and wives, to not love and sacrifice for the other. All these pursuits of human glory are nothing. And in the end, they will be shown to be nothing. This is why Christ rejects Satan's offer of all the glories of the world 
And it is the reason why our humble, meek, perfect Savior tells us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart? This day, where is your heart? This day, under this passage of Scripture, with this view of human glory. One of the questions that, well, I want to talk a little bit about Pharaoh and whether or not he died in the sea. But before I do that, I want you to notice something important here about the fleeing Egyptians. God destroys them as they are fleeing. You know, it's, um, it's too late. There's no turning back for the Egyptians at this point. You know, they've had the opportunity to turn back up to this point. And now it is simply too late. I think this is a wake-up call for anyone here today who is not a believer. If you're sitting in here this morning and you are not a Christian, you're not converted, you do not trust Christ for salvation, you do not have his blood over, you do not have his spirit, you have not been born again, you've never been transformed, you've never been changed, You've never repented of your sins and turned around 180 degrees and gone the other direction to serve Christ alone. I think this is a wake-up call for you this morning to consider this one thing. One day, it will be too late. Today, praise God it's not. Today, right now, as you, as you breathe, as you feel as you smell and hear and, and touch and see all of these things, you're alive. By God's grace, right now you're alive. Don't wait to trust Christ, to turn from sin, because one day it will be too late. As I said before, one of the questions that people, people often ask is whether or not Pharaoh died in the sea it's important to see here that the text does not say that Pharaoh and all of his force died to every last person who left Egypt. Verse 28 says, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And then listen to what it says, of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remains. It seems to qualify it with those of this force that followed them into the sea. Verse 23 tells us that all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his charioteers followed them into the sea. And so I think we are to understand that this includes the entire chariot force of Pharaoh's army. But nothing is said here concerning the death of Pharaoh himself. However, in Psalm 136.15... It says that the Lord overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. Now, while this does suggest that Pharaoh died, 
Some have argued that the grammar could be taken to mean that one idea is in view instead of two. So rather than interpreting it to mean Pharaoh and his host, it could be understood or collapsed to be Pharaoh's host. Whatever we conclude on this point of whether or not the Pharaoh himself died, maybe Thutmose III, whether he died, here's what we do know. Or whether the Pharaoh died, the, the chronology and so forth, and Egypt, Egyptologists debate the chronology of ancient Egypt. But whatever we are to conclude on this point, here's what we know. The great bulk of Pharaoh's force and all of his chariot force are destroyed at the sea. There is no longer any possibility of pursuit now or in the future. It's done. God has rescued his people, verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So we've seen the fighting, we've seen the destroying, and now finally we come to the showing. Look at verses 30 to 31. The concluding verses to this most famous of biblical stories. Thus... The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Here we get the conclusion to the story. One word, salvation. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day, a day to remember forever, a day of great faithfulness from the Lord. This is the God who keeps his promises, who kept his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same God who built a nation out of an old couple and a barren wife has now made a path for his people through the sea. In other words, God has done the impossible. As we read several times in Scripture, Nothing is impossible with the Lord. We need to be reminded of that. You're praying for your grown children. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. And any other thing that you could be anxious about, worried about, defeated about, that sin that you feel that you're enslaved to, but you're told in Scripture that sin will have no dominion over you. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. God brought an old couple, barren wife, a child named Isaac, and through that one child, whose wife was also unable to have children, he brought an entire nation. And now he has brought that people through a sea. This is our God. The word that ties these verses together is this verb, saw. Israel saw. It is daylight now, and Israel is able to see the fruit of God's salvation. It's interesting, you know, throughout the night, that's when Israel travels through. But, but God waits until the morning light so that the people can see the destruction of the Egyptians. They saw. They see the dead bodies. Many Many bodies of the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
no longer pursuing them, no longer able to enslave them or kill their children, no longer capable of capturing and oppressing them for century upon century. No, they are dead. And then we get the word Saul again. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So what is the effect of this seeing? What effect does this seeing have on the Israelites? Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And then we are told that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What's the effect of seeing fear? And trust. Thus, we revere God. We are in awe of God. We recognize his greatness and his holiness. And we always consider that he is judge of all the earth. And as Romans 2 says, he will give to each man according to his deeds. Those who bear out deeds in Christ by the Holy Spirit, that will show on the last day the authenticity of that conversion will show on the last day. Or to use Jesus' words in Matthew 7, that house will stand because that person wasn't just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word, and that house will stand. That life will not be like chaff that the wind drives away, but it will be like a firmly planted tree that stands in the presence of God on the day of Judgment. This is what it is to fear the Lord as a believer, to fear Him and to trust Him. This language of belief in echoes Genesis 15 6. It's interesting here, this great moment of salvation, and here the people are said to believe in the Lord, and that goes all the way back to Father Abraham. God takes him out and shows him all those stars. He has no children and a barren wife. And God tells him to look at the stars, and He says, Just as many as the stars in heaven. So will be your offspring, Abraham, Abram, from your own body. And Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. So it goes back to Abraham's faith. It goes forward to what we read in Psalm 106, verse 12. Then they believed his words. They sang his praises. And that's what we're going to look at in the coming weeks is how they sing God's praises out of their belief. And let me just say that to us as we think about the connection between chapter 14 of Exodus and chapter 15. Let's consider the fact that our singing God's praises, our putting together lyrics, our vocalizing those lyrics unto God is a direct result of seeing and experiencing God's saving power. And fearing him and trusting him. We praise out of a heart of fear of the Lord and trust in him. And as we read in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 29. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians when they attempted to do the same were drowned. The people see. The people see because God shows them. The showing brings the fearing and believing. So as we close this morning, I just want to ask all of us a question. How does God show us? How does he do that? 
If, if the showing and the seeing result in the fearing and the believing, we need to ask, how does God show us? Or to ask it a different way, how do we see? How do we come to see? And the answer is very simple. It is through reading the Word of God. That is how we see. You know, Bible reading can become a, a bit of a slogan or a cliche. Yeah, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. And we just don't, we just, it's like a duty that we just do. And, and we'll try, you know, we fail, and we do all that stuff. This is why we read the Bible. We read the Bible because in it, it is as though a window opens up onto the glory of God and his saving power and purposes. And we come to see this God at work and we come to know him as we see him. And all of a sudden in our hearts, we begin to revere him as who he is. We see him in his holiness. We worship him and we trust in him with everything. We have rock solid confidence in him. Neglect your Bible and you won't have this. This fearing won't be there. You're being trapped by all kinds of sins because you don't see God as holy. And you don't see sin for the disgusting thing that it is. That's what happens when we don't fear the Lord. That's what happens when we don't read God's word. And we won't trust him. We'll worry about everything. We'll be afraid of everything. We'll grumble about everything. Because we're not seeing the Lord. And we're not seeing the Lord because we're not reading that dusty Bible. It's because we're too busy on our phones. Too busy making sure people like our comments. Too busy reading these ridiculous news stories over on the side of the page. Too busy just wasting life. The Word of God. We must read it if we are to see this great Lord. This is where fear of God is born. This is where fear of God is sustained. This is where the battle against sin is fought. This is where faith in God is created and nurtured. We must see all that God is and all that he has done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ or in Hebrew, Yeshua, salvation. In other words, we must read Scripture to see Christ. In other words, we must read Scripture to see the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your great love for us in giving us your word. Oh God, how, how we neglect it how we excuse it, how we justify it, and how we pine after all kinds of human glory to the neglect of it. Father, help us. We are greatly in need of your mercy. We are in need of your fighting for us in this area, Father. We are in need of your power working in our wills, just as you can harden the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Lord, you can soften our hearts. You can ready our hearts. You can motivate and spur on our hearts so that we 
immerse ourselves in your precious word and see you and your salvation so that we might grow in fear of God and trust in God. Lord, help us, we pray, to set aside all of the frivolities and trivialities and time wasters of this often silly life. Lord, have mercy on us and help us be serious people. Help us, as Jesus says, be those who mourn. Help us be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.